Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. We got a guest. What? (laughs) We don't have a guest today. (laughs) No guest today. This is going to be awkward. (laughs) I know. (laughs) The reason, for those that are wondering why we've had so many guests lately, I cannot stand David. I need to look at somebody else for a while. Yeah, it's true. Um, But yeah, we're going to see how this goes. Um, (laughs) And we're going to get to our uh, very uh, boring... uh, career profile yeah. in a bit. But first I want to talk about some exciting stuff. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, last night I ended up having a uh, shitty day at work. I don't want to talk about that. But uh, oh, okay. I did not get to go see The Last Exorcism, which was my original plan okay. to do last night. But let's say I had, uh, I did and I liked it. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Is that how is that how it's going to work on our show now? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, no, that seems like no, a thing I'd see. For the purpose of this conversation, let's say I saw it and I liked it. Okay, um, when we had like back when we had Josh fade him on, we did the uh, summer movie preview. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pointed out, as has everyone else in the uh, film community, pointed out that this was a weak summer. Yeah, um, n- not a lot of exciting stuff, and um, uh, Toy Story three lived up. To expectations, yeah. uh, as listeners know, for me, Inception did not. I don't yeah. want to come across like a troll, but yeah, for many, yeah, for many, uh, Inception was you know, Toy Story three was the movie of June, Inception mm-hmm. was the movie of July, and for many, Scott Pilgrim was the movie of August. Yeah, so but this this summer has really turned around for me. Okay, because of Scott Pilgrim, and because of Piranha three D and Eat Pray Love. I didn't see it. Oh, okay. And let's say because of The Last Exorcism, because I was kind of hoping that I'd like it and it would be part of this conversation. So let's say I liked it. It's doing quite well. Okay. People seem to enjoy it, so let's right. say it's great. Yeah. Um, it, it's, the, it's the movies that I... Even though I was... I was interested in Scott Pilgrim from the moment I, when I saw mm-hmm. the first trailer, but I had no idea yeah. that it, I would love it as much... Anywhere near as much as I did. I forget. Was that... Scott Pilgrim, wasn't that like a little like kick-ass with you where you were interested, but then all the buzz kind of made you, kind of uh, killed it for you a little I bit? I guess I'm always a little wary, but it didn't kill me because I, it killed it for me. It didn't kill me. It okay. didn't kill it for me because I really, really liked that, just that first trailer. Okay. And I liked the premise so much that, uh, I w- that yeah, I mean, anytime anything gets too buzzy, mm-hmm. it's going to get on my nerves a little bit, but it, no, it didn't kill it for me. Like Ruth Buzzy? <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Um. So, basically, what I'm what I'm saying is this movie has this summer has been turned around for me this last few weeks of it at least mm-hmm. by movies that I just that they just kind of blindsided me. Yeah. Uh, now you have not seen Piranha 3D. No, I haven't. Which is a shame. Yeah. Because it's awesome. <laughs> okay. So here's the okay. So I was talking with a, a friend of mine uh, whose taste I I agree with and um, and I said, hey, you know. Uh, I, I guess I got to see Piranha three, three D. I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, my my friend said uh, he's like he said it in a way that he didn't. I don't think he meant for it to sound snooty because he was tired. But he just like I'm not seeing that. <laughs> and <it was> just, <laughs> um, but uh, in many ways, and and every every review that I've read about the film mentions like it how campy it is and all that kind of thing, like on purpose. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, to me, 
something that's campy on purpose walks a very very fine line. But I don't know that it is campy. I, I don't know that, that I wouldn't call it that. It's not like okay. the uh, that. It's not like Psycho Beach Party. That would be. Let's go. Uh, let's let's try this. Self aware. Anything that is that self aware. Um, yeah, and that was maybe my fear going in. Okay, but it's not. It's self aware, yes, but it's not. It's not poking fun at the genre. Okay. It's uh, really, really just having a good time. So there are moments of like legitimate scares and legitimate gore and all that. Oh my god! Other moments of gore. There's okay. more than moments of gore. There's it's a movie of gore. Okay. Uh, and you know, I say that I've, I've heard some people say that it wasn't as gory as they expected, and I, by all accounts, I mean by all accounts, I can't think. I can't think today. I haven't finished my coffee. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a bit squeamish. I am a okay. bit of a squeamish person, so the gore in Piranha 3D seemed insane to me. Okay. And uh, I was fine with it. But no, what it is, it's not. Yeah, it's not making fun. It's basically, it's a movie, alright, you see sometimes a movie, uh, I'm trying to think of examples, um, but like when you, just, uh, you're at a, a video store, mm-hmm. you know, back when those existed, and you see like, the unrated version of something, yeah. and you think, oh, this one's really gonna deliver on the on the, on the the raunch, or the nudity, or the blood, yeah. or whatever it is you're looking for, and it never does, it's just some... It's just some stuff they cut out for perfectly good reasons that they put back in. Right, and and the stuff is not, is often that yes, I, I learned this from when I would read home video magazine at the back of a uh, blockbuster. Uh-huh. Yeah, the stuff they cut out is usually stuff they cut out for time. Yeah, not because it was not because it was inappropriate. Yeah, and so they put it back in, and they can say it's unrated because that footage was not seen by the ratings yeah. board. So they can say it's unrated, and there might be a couple of things here and there, but for the most part. No, it's just uh, more stuff. Yeah. Um, so those movies, uh, my, my, I'm saying all this to, to get to the point that those movies do not deliver on their promise. Okay. The the absolute least you can say about Piranha 3D is that it delivers on its promise. It, if you are going to see an R-rated uh, horror film with lots of nudity and lots of gore, and piranhas. Yeah, that, that's you're, you. You can't possibly be disappointed by Piranha 3D. Now, do these piranhas fly? No. Okay. In one of the piranha movies, don't they fly? I think is it. I don't remember how many are there. Only two. Yeah, but I haven't seen either one of them. Oh, okay. Because Joe Dante, Joe Dan- the, Dante was the first. You're Cameron. such a Joe Dante fan. How have you not seen the first Piranha? I know. Which, from what I understand, is uh, what this. Uh, well, I, I have no, I've not seen Piranha Two, so I might be wrong. I have no doubt that James Cameron took it very seriously. <laughs> but um, you know, I was reading. Uh, this could be just apocryphal internet rumors, but uh, there was a scene they weren't able to get the two together to do it. But there was going to be a scene where Joe Dante and James Cameron were boat captains giving safety lessons <laughs> to the Spring Breakers. That'd be pretty. That awesome. would have been great. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, from so. But from what I hear, the Joe Dante film, I haven't seen either one either. So that's one of the reasons why I wasn't that uh, eager to see Piranha 3D because I feel like I wouldn't be able to follow it. <laughs> but um, but like the first one, as as is Joe Dante's want, uh, Dante's want. That's the thing I just said. Um, you know, it's it, it always has a, a sort of a sense of humor about itself, and while still like delivering on some of the scares, it it it's. It's aware of its genre. It's aware of what it needs to do, and and so there are there are like some chuckles, but not at the film's expense. Um, more like the film is just like 
can you believe this? Piranhas eating people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is insane. Um, and so, uh, so it sounds like in many ways, uh, there, Piranha 3D is a throwback to what the Piranha series was always supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's goofy and it's gory. Got, what's that? And gory. Oh yeah. Okay. And it's got like uh, Adam Scott is in it. Okay. You know, uh, of Party Down. Yes. Um, Richard Dreyfuss is playing is in it playing a character that is. For legal reasons, not named Matt Hooper, yeah. right? Hooper? Hooper, yeah. Uh, but is essentially Matt Hooper. And then Christopher Lloyd is in it playing uh, a guy who, uh, he's a he's like a fish expert, but he's a fish, he's a scientist in the way that Doc Brown was a scientist. Oh, okay. He very much acts like Doc Brown, except he has a weird little mustache for some reason. When you told me about, for, I, didn't, I had no idea Christopher Lloyd was in this thing. I'm really excited now. But when you told me, a long time ago, because I didn't know this about uh, Richard Dreyfuss's involvement in the film. Uh-huh. When you first told me that he plays a character named Matt, and he's a lot like Matt Hooper <laughs> from Jaws, you kind of got me. Like yeah. that, that hooked me. It sh- it hooked me. Yeah, like a fish. There you go. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, and you know, Ving Rhames picks up, like, takes the propeller off of a boat and kills fish with the running <laughs> propeller. Uses it as a weapon. Uh. This is what. Uh, it's it's just the most it's a it's a movie that's completely honest yeah. about what it is and it delivers and also it moves like not that it's a long movie yeah but it was over before I knew it it okay uh, it it is just a nonstop carnivorous fish action why isn't that on on the poster it seems like it should be um, yeah and I guess here's a here's a quite okay so. I'll say this. Uh, oh, also the girl who played Dizzy in Starship Troopers is in it. Hey, all right. Not for very long. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, so uh, for those that don't know, David and I were on a, a podcast slash radio show called The Marketplace of Ideas. Yeah, I need to, like, we've been, we had so many guests lately. Yeah. We haven't been thanking our past guests yeah. for being on the show. So thanks to Danforth and to Jesse and to Adam uh, I can't even go. I can't remember how far back we went. Patrick, Patrick uh, Vankman, Vankman, uh, <laughs> Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I think that might be everything. Yeah, but we also need Stephen Tobolowski. Of course, yeah. We also need to mention that we uh, we both did episodes separately of the uh, Benny South Street Chronicles. Yeah, which I hadn't mentioned. It's a, it was a lot of fun talking mm-hmm. about amateur theater. Uh, so check that out. And then we were on yes, the Marketplace of Ideas. With a uh, friend of the show, uh, Colin Marshall, and it was uh, a he lot of fun. He hasn't been on the show. I don't think he qualifies as a friend of the show. He mentions our show in a lot of his reviews on Pod Thoughts. I feel I like just, he's a friend of the show. Uh, I, I just think that, look, Colin Marshall's a great guy. He sure is. I just think we can't, there are rules okay. to, to, to doing a podcast. And I think it's you know it's like I watched. Are Donnie, there? I don't think there. Yeah, I, I there watched are Donnie Brasco the other day. You know, yeah. the difference between friend of mine and friend of ours. Okay, fair enough. Colin Rush is like a friend of mine. Yeah, He's like Lefty is vouching for indeed yeah. for Colin's Donnie Brasco. I see, but he's not a friend of ours. He okay. hasn't. They haven't opened up the books and set him right. So I guess he's just a fan of the show. You get get him straightened out. Colin's going to love this. Um, I watched Tony Brasco the other day. Yeah, so I know I you did. I can quote um, it front to back, actually. I've seen the movie a million times. That is a movie... We should do a topic someday, actually, of, like, what what our personal just sort of, like, comfort food mm. type movies are, yeah. you know? 
because uh, Donnie Brasco and In the Line of Fire are like at the top of the list for me. I've seen both those movies. A How is times. that comfort food for you? Both of those movies are incredibly tense. I guess that's what I like. Oh my gosh, that's exhausting. The reason I brought up Marketplace of Ideas, and go and listen to it, uh, Colin interviews David and myself, and it's a lot of fun, in spite of the fact that I do put my foot in my mouth a couple of times. Um, <laughs> but uh, This is your want. <laughs> yeah. Um, but afterwards, uh, we were talking with Colin, and, he, and we were talking about the movie uh, Zombieland. Zombieland. And... Um, I hate that we all just know you're going to do it now. <laughs> I um, wasn't going to do it until you you gestured at it. <laughs> but we knew, but I knew you were thinking it. Yeah, of course, of course you were. Um, but uh, but so we were talking about the the film, and and Colin was was commenting that it the the film's lack of ambition bothered him. Like, uh-huh. and, and you can say this with almost any movie that quote unquote knows what it is. You hear that that phrase used a lot with certain types of movies, mm-hmm. um, and it makes you wonder, like something like. Piranha 3D. From by all accounts, it knows what it is. Uh-huh. It does not really aspire to be much more, nor does it uh, try to transcend what it's trying to do. Um, and ha- I've not seen the movie. I want to see the movie. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, but let me ask you this: I mean, someone could very easily, in regards to Piranha 3D, say like, "Yeah, it knows what it is, but what it is is." A movie of very low ambition and who cares? No, that's the difference. Okay. Sometimes a movie like, uh, uh, you know, what I, I like Zombieland maybe a little more than than Colin did, but mm-hmm. let's just use it. As, let's use it as an example. No. But you don't like it as much as I do. No. Um, let's say that is a movie that uh, knows what it is and then uses that as an excuse to cut corners or be lazy, mm-hmm. which is not. Uh, again, I don't want to. That's not how I feel about Zombieland. Right. That that ty- I, I'm just not being able to think of. An example yeah. off the top of my head. Damn it! <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, it says like uh, the movie just is like, oh, I just got to be this. I got to hit these marks, and right. I'll be this kind of movie. You know, mm-hmm. whereas Prana 3D is a movie that knows what it is and then sets out to be the absolute best it can be at okay. being that kind of movie. Okay, all right. So, so it's, it's uh, you. There's a lot of things you can say about Prana 3D, but lack of ambition. Is not okay. Uh, so. I mean, they they uh, they really raise the bar in, in in terms of like just how many people you can see get eaten by piranha in one movie. This has been a also. This has been a weird. I, I feel like we could almost do an entire like summer movie recap. And frankly, I feel like probably in a few weeks we'll do that on the Paul Goebel show. We've done it before. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, he hasn't asked us or anything like that, but it seems like it's something he'll probably ask us to do. But I'll, um, I'll ask him to ask us. That, that's the spirit. <laughs> um, we haven't been on in a while. I don't like that. But uh, this has been a, a... There's always a certain degree of nostalgia in a lot of summer movies, but, I mean, this this summer, lots and lots... I mean, you've got A-Team, you've got Predators, Karate you've got Kid. Piranha, you've got Karate Kid... Uh, I feel like there might even be one or two more that I'm forgetting, but... Uh, but even, even Toy Story 3 is... Yeah, I guess so. Um, but, like, a- oh, a- Expendables, which is not a-, a sequel to anything, but... Or a remake, but it's a throwback to, you know, it features yeah. all these uh, 80s action stars. And, and I guess there's a certain degree of nostalgia in uh, Scott Pilgrim as well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and some of those examples are good and some are bad, but they're... Yeah. They are all part of a... a I'm a, I was going to say a trend, but it's almost the raison d'etre of Hollywood, which mm. is lack of foresight and imagination. Yeah. They're 
just Hollywood is always going to be more willing to bankroll something that calls something else to mind. Yeah. You know, uh, because they feel like it's safe. Yeah. And I don't understand that. It, I, the thing, I, I guess, was it William Goldman who said about Hollywood that nobody knows anything? That's like the one thing you need to know about Hollywood. Nobody knows anything. I don't know if it was William Goldman, but uh, sound advice. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's true, but they have to pretend like they know things to justify their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then they make excuses or whatever for why. However, I felt about it. Inception was an original idea. It wasn't mm-hmm. based on anything. It wasn't trying to uh, put you in mind of anything else. Right. It made a shit ton of money. Yeah. Uh, but they're not going to learn any lessons from that because Hollywood never learns any lessons from anything. <laughs> they never do. Every um, uh, Once a year, maybe once every two years, you'll there will be a movie uh, that's aimed at women that features a a female lead and makes a lot of money and then all the the sort of film press will say this is it the, the hollywood's going to finally realize that uh women go see movies too they don't have to market them just to men but it happens like once a year it happened with sex in the city it happened with devil devil wears prada the, eat pray the, love is is one of those i think sure yeah um and they're never going to learn any lessons. It's still going to be those kind of movies. Movies for women are still going to be marginalized mm-hmm. or presented in a patronizing fashion. Uh, you know, that's uh, that that's telling women what they want based on stereotypes of what women want. But the, I guess you mean the movie "What Women Want." Yes. Okay. Stereotypes of that. That's kind of how I feel about Sex in the City, though. Yeah. Um. Anyway, you got anything else to say on, on this topic? No, no. It's just it's. <laughs> It's weird to me that because I was when I was not growing up, but like in the '90s when you and I started watching movies, like there was nostalgia for like the '70s or a certain type, certain filmmakers like a like a Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. A lot of the movies that he made were not throwbacks, but they paid uh, homage to movies from the '60s and '70s. And uh, it's weird to think that I've been around long enough. That now movies are paying homage to movies I grew up with, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I've been, I'm old enough now that <laughs> I'm that, and just like, oh, geez, I'm. St- I, in a few years, I will have fallen out of like the key demo, and uh, I guess not for probably ten years or so. Yeah, but uh, but nonetheless, it's just it's it's weird to see. It's just like, wait a second, why are they making another Karate Kid? Oh, it's a it's a remake. Oh no! Oh, I feel very old. Nobody's gonna remember that that Mr. Miyagi, but uh, but yeah. So, so what's next? Do you think they're gonna reboot Honey I Shrunk the Kids? Man, with today's uh, technology and today's uh, special they'd be effects, foolish not to. They'd be yeah. They're missing an opportunity there. But uh, anyway, okay. So we've okay, been talking. Let's long talk about updated. some movies that haven't been remade, nor nor will they. Some some very serious movies. Okay, fair enough. Um, let, let's get into it. Um, shall we? This uh, uh, this is episode 180, and as uh, listeners know, every time we do an episode where the number of the the last number of the episode is a zero, okay, uh, we do uh, a career profile, an mm-hmm. artist profile, be it a filmmaker or um, an actor or. Writer, uh, uh, a writer, 
a costume designer. Yeah. We should do a critic mm. at some point. Um, but today we're doing a cinematographer for the second time, I think. We did yes. John A. Alonzo. Episode oh. 25. Yeah. That's not still available, is it? No, it is not. Oh, thank God. Why, um, thank God? Because anything before episode 40, I'm embarrassed by. Really? We had some good episodes. I'm sure we Anything did. Anything before 15, fair enough. Yeah, even 15. 15 was David Lean. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't feel good about that. There, we had some good stuff. Um, no one knows, yeah. but that's all right. No, our, you're, not, our, you're not missing anything if you can't. If you've joined late and you can't download those, you are not missing anything. Indeed. Um, so, no, today we were going to talk about the, the career of Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis. Uh, who is a cinematographer who, by the way, I mean, is, is still alive. Yeah. He's, he'll be 80 next year, I think. I think so. No. Yeah, yeah, he'll be 80 next year. He was born okay. in 31. Okay. Um, uh, but, and, and worked, he started in 1970, so I guess at the end of his 30s is when he actually started as a cinematographer. Yeah, it um, was, it was weird. I, this is going to sound terrible, but. Because of the era in which he sort of flourished, um, that's what I was getting. When at, I looked him he, up, he worked for a long time, yeah, and he's still alive. But we're going to be talking almost, almost exclusively about the 1970s. Yeah, and uh, when I looked him up, I was actually surprised that he was still alive. And I was like, "What? What do you mean? I'm sure he's. I, I guess I just assumed that he was an older guy or like middle aged during that time. But no, he was he was young. Like during his, uh, he was fairly young during his." Uh, most productive time. Well, I guess Gordon Willis is just an old guy's name. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, but uh, yeah, he's a. When when we were trying to figure out um, who we were going to discuss, uh, we we threw a, a couple of uh, DPs around, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we, we tossed back some Dr. Peppers and, and had a discussion about it. <laughs> and then we we laid down some dead presidents. We listened to the dead presidents. Man, I wish we had a guest right now. But, because uh, you wouldn't pull bring that. up devil penetration. Ugh. <laughs> what? You wouldn't pull that shit if uh, Pat Healy was here, here. We should get him on the show. I, uh, I might pull with Pat Healy here. Yeah, that was a bad example. <laughs> Sklar Brothers. You wouldn't pull it if the Sklar Brothers were here. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Maurice LaMarche? No, I wouldn't pull that shit. Okay, there we go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that episode's still available, right? The yes, Maurice it is. LaMarche? That's a good one. 115. That's one I'm proud of. No, not 115. Yeah. Maurice LaMarche, 115. Wow. Yeah. It seems longer ago than that. I, w- I would have guessed maybe like 80. Nope. How about that? Anyway. Now then. Well, so, oh, you were talking. That's right, <laughs> I was. Sorry, yeah. Everybody, we don't I apologize. Know how to function without a guest anymore. I know it's uh, we're so used to with a guest uh, episodes are tend to be a little looser, uh-huh. and uh, and so with a third person, sometimes a fourth. I mean, there's always someone that has something to say. Also, it's a little early in the day for me. For you, yeah. Um, it's but, two o'clock in the afternoon, but yeah, <laughs> I stay up late, and so. Um, but no, what I was what I was saying is, uh, so we were throwing around some some names of uh, directors of photography. Uh, that's what DP means, mm-hmm. uh, among all those other examples, <laughs> you horrible man. Um, and uh, and we landed. I, I think it was you that suggested Gordon Willis. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I had heard his name before. I, again, as as we mentioned, um, I don't I don't really f- there. There's a few uh, DPs that I know about. Uh, 
and he was he was one of the ones that I had heard about. And then when I thought more about it, I was like, oh yeah, he really is. He's very very distinctive. Um, mm-hmm. When it came to the the last uh, cinematographer we profiled, John Alonzo, I, I wasn't really sure what distinguished him from from other uh, cinematographers. And then once I started really thinking about it and like looking over some of the films that he'd made, um, I was like, oh okay, yeah, absolutely. He's he's fairly distinct. But Gordon Willis. Uh, has a very distinct style mm. um, and one that you would be surprised if you look at like I haven't seen a lot of the movies that he's done but if you look at them there's a surprising amount of like I'll I'll jump to an example he did like all three Godfather movies but he also worked with Woody Allen a lot and yeah. you wouldn't think there'd be a lot of uh, overlap there but there actually is he was a skilled guy yeah um, and uh, but that, I want to talk about why. The, yeah, the two cinematographers we've done have both been guys, pretty much who had who had their main films in the 1970s. You mm-hmm. know, John Alonzo did, you know, like uh, Chinatown, Bad News Bears, Bad News Bears. Yeah, um, and and as you talked about, Godfather and Woody Allen stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's kind of a reason for that. I think, um, uh, I mean, it's there's uh, like. Easy Riders and Raging Bulls are a decade under the influence. No. Like a lot of these, uh, the, there's definitely a, a theory that the '70s was uh, a golden age yeah. for cinema. Really, I think it was like '67 to '74 or something <laughs> was the real golden age. I mean, there's some stuff. I mean, like Network came after that. Yeah, pe- people cu- tend that. to cut it off at '75 because '75, like that, had Jaws in it. But that's not. But as, that's as great as Jaws is, it's not. A part of that, right? It's a great movie for different reasons. Yeah, and I think a lot of people actually cut off, cut it off there because that's when the summer blockbuster came about, and that. Yeah. But to some people, I'm not sure if I would include myself in that. But to some people, that ruined the golden age is because uh, nothing is more studio than the idea of the summer blockbuster. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and th- this golden age was uh, essentially. Uh, I don't know, maybe Hollywood for a second realizing they didn't, just for a few years realizing that nobody mm. knew anything and saying, I, these directors, they really seem to, they, they, yeah. they seem really uh, excited. So yeah. let's just see what they can do. And then you get, you know, everything from Bonnie and Clyde to The Godfather Part Two. Yeah, my, my attitude in regards to the studios at the time is a little more cynical where it's just like, all right, look, just do let them do what they want to do so they'll just shut up, all right? <laughs> I'm tired of dealing with them. And uh, nothing we seem to be doing is working, so just let them have – let the baby have his bottle. <laughs> um, so what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that, um, that, that while that's true of directors, I think that's true of cinematographers and just, mm-hmm. just anyone who's making films in general at that point when it was no longer uh, so uh, – such stifling a process yeah, yeah it's like i mean as i mean casablanca is a very well lit and photographed movie mm-hmm. but it does seem like it's playing by a certain certain yeah. rules you know um uh, and then obviously the uh i, I don't want to say like it's a clean break because obviously you've got the noir films right. which were very i'd say very very influential on gordon, gordon willis in particular yeah in, in, in cinematography it just at large in general. Um, but there's a reason that these guys, the, I think the cinematographer really came into his own as, as a respected artist. Yeah. 
in, in during this golden age. And I think some of it has to do because other guys I was looking. I mean, I was mm-hmm. looking at like, we did Don John Alonzo. Uh, I considered Leslo Kovacs. Yeah, yeah. Whose name I'm sure I'm butchering. Yeah. Uh, and, and and of course Gordon Willis, like all these great guys from mm-hmm. Sarah. And it's, I think you know it might Conrad have to do Hall. with Con- yeah yeah we brought him up and and uh, and he's actually I feel like I think he was the one I was I was reading up on Gordon Willis I think it was Conrad Hall who dubbed Gordon Willis the Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I'm going to get um, to that in a second. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, I think some of it has to do with, and I think I think the this is going to sound kind of strange because there's a lot of really wonderful, uh, as, as David said, like there's some really great cinematography, you know, in uh, you know early film days like 30s, 40s, 50s, just everything leading up to that. Um, and there was a lot of really wonderful editing. I mean, you had yeah. There's this guy named John Seitz who worked with uh, Billy Wilder a lot. I, you should remember his name. John, John Sites. John Sites. You should remember his name. It sounds a, a delightful. Yeah, he did Double Indemnity. Yeah. It's a name I'll never forget. No question about it. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, well done. But uh, it's... That's a payout. You look for that, look <laughs> no, for that payout. Don't spoil it for Okay. Um, but I feel like, I feel like in, in much the same way, uh, editing, while of course there was... There were plenty of films that were just really wonderfully edited... Um, during that time, uh, I think everything did take something of an experimental turn, uh, during this golden age, including Mm -hmm. editing, including cinematography, where the directors themselves were a little more willing to just kind of think outside the box, um, and just kind of do really whatever it took to evoke a certain emotion. You know, my friend, or actually friend of the show, uh, Andrew Reed, also a cinematographer, uh, had this theory that it wasn't really it wasn't really until the 1960s that filmmakers were treating film as its own art form. Well, yeah, you know, it's it was a gradual process, sort of divorcing film from theater, yeah, or from like just a filming, a filming people, actors acting, filming yeah. theater. You know, um, and it was only in that, his theory. I don't entirely agree, but it's worth chewing over. Is that it wasn't until the 1960s that you had a, a group of directors who had grown up being influenced only by films, yeah. not really by by theater or anything else. And so they were able to see it as its own art form, which is why you get editing. Uh, you get things like Easy Rider, again, to mention yeah. that, again, is a, is a very bizarrely edited movie for the time, you know, or or um, a movie called The Hired Hand mm. um, with uh, uh, Peter Fonda. Fonda. Uh, and that's the 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 way that that movie that movie has so many dissolves mm-hmm. that I took I I took a class in co- in college in film school on optical printing and how to how to actually do it like mm-hmm. it's you know it's not just now these days you can do a dissolve just by laying the two shots next to each other yeah, on yeah. the you know the two digital things next to each other and hitting a button or whatever yeah. whereas Doing a dissolve on an optical printer in the early 1970s took a lot of time, huh. and the hired hand must have taken forever to just to. It's just constantly dissolving in and out of shots. It's really, hmm. it's really beautiful in the theory. I've got to see that movie. movie. You 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 I recommend it up and down, and I, I I still haven't seen it. And I think I would enjoy it a great deal. Um, yeah, and of course, I, of course, I'm sure there are some people that are jumping up and down and being like, "But what about this filmmaker? What about that filmmaker?" Of course, there's exceptions to the rule. I mean, for me. Orson Welles, yeah. the moment he became a film director, immediately 
I think, recognized it as its own unique art form, both uh-huh. in the way he told the story, the way he shot it, the way he edited it. I mean, everything. He seemed to get it. And, and, there's, and there's any number of filmmakers yeah. just like him. So uh, Orson Welles was... It's, uh, I'm not uh, saying anything revolutionary to say he was, he was ahead of his time in ways that, yeah. that even people who are ahead of their time usually aren't that far ahead of their time. Yeah, it's but uh, I mean, even before him, there like Sergei Eisenstein mm. clearly understood what what film could do. Yeah, you know he uh, and you know the the Russia the Soviets in general were the ones who kind of discovered like, uh, hey, it's not just here's this shot and then here's this shot. The way you place the shots next to each other, yeah, really affect the story. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I don't mean to turn it into a history lesson, but yeah, I mean, then there's. Like D.W. Griffith, and I feel like somebody like a, like Hitchcock really understood, like really grasped the power of a lot of these things. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like th- those. I think are the exceptions to the rule for the most part. I mean, anybody who watches something like um, Singing in the Rain uh-huh. knows that the the impact that like sound, but all these it just it was a very theatrical mentality. Even a movie as much as I love it, a movie like Maltese Falcon, you f- you are watching a play for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, so yeah, I feel like there was just this spirit of, hey, let's just do this. However, we're going to do it uh, in the in the '60s and '70s, where filmmakers were willing to just try new things and commit to trying new things. And and I, you almost wonder if if for years, like the various cinematographers and editors were were being like, oh man, I really have an idea, but I guess he's the director. And then the, the '60s comes along, and they're like, oh. Finally, <laughs> now we're talking. Because um, I yeah. feel like I feel like uh, I feel like invariably it's it's the people who can make things happen and are fascinated with kind of the nitty gritty of a specific uh, art form that are more willing to just really test that out um, and don't often get the permission to do it. Yeah. But uh, so let's yeah. get into the films themselves. Actually. Absolutely. Um, We've been talking for a while, but that's fine because we're not going. There's not a lot of movies we can discuss. Yeah, and there's not a lot. Of different points to make about each movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked at length about what Gordon Willis yeah. in this generation is. Let's talk about Gordon Willis in particular through his movies. Uh, chronologically, the first one on the list is some, one I haven't seen. Yeah. That you have seen. It's mm-hmm. uh, Clute. Yeah. And uh, directed by Alan J. Pakula. Is, it, is that it, how you pronounce it? Pakula? I don't know. Pakula? I say Pakula because <laughs> it's like Dracula. <laughs> and Bakula. It's like yeah. Scott Bakula. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Clute, I, I haven't seen, but this would this uh, would certainly not be the last time he worked with Alan J. Uh, Pakula. Um, yeah, I'm sure he loves that. Um, yeah, uh, he he worked with him on uh, the Parallax View and uh, all the President's Men, and we'll get to those in a moment. But uh, Clute uh, is remembered mostly for being the movie that uh, Jane Fonda won an Oscar for. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won two. And uh, and her performance included is certainly very good. She went two for this movie. She, that's right, <laughs> actress. So good. She tied herself. Um, there are not a lot of good female performances that year. No, of course Jane Fonda would later win again for Step Monster. Of course, absolutely. What's it called? Monster. Monster in law. Step Monster. That is that's probably, it seems that's like the name movie. of something, right? I'm sure it's a movie. Um, but uh, terrible horror movie from the '80s. I would have to assume. <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting movie, and I think it will kick off one of the things that we'll be talking about okay. frequently with uh, Gordon Willis. As David mentioned, um, 
there's probably a film noir influence there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mentioned that Conrad Hall dubbed him the Prince of Darkness. Which every, I mean, I did a little bit of research and mm-hmm. every source I read was very quick. That's like the first thing they po- pointed oh, yeah. out. Yeah. Conrad it's, Hall called him the Prince of Darkness. And, uh, yeah, rightfully so. I mean, it's, it, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, uh, certainly with, um, with all the president's men, but I, I want to mention it uh, here that, yeah, there's a, there's an idea. I remember back in, in film school and you went to, I mean, you, you actually took, you know, some like camera classes that I never took and lighting classes. But you know, one of the ideas is everything is completely dark except what you light. You know what I mean? There, that seems to be one of the attitudes as opposed to everything is light. And then you, and then you might take something away and make it dark. Uh And, um, and the dark except what you light, that seemed to be his, his attitude, uh, with Clute and, and some of these other movies that, um, it's just, it's a, it's a, a suspense film, you know, there's a murderer and it's, it is a very, it's a film that does make you very uneasy, like, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very, it's just really well done just in general. But, uh, but yeah, in, in the true film noir sense, I mean, there's a lot of just pools of darkness Mm -hmm. if that makes sense um just this very nice inky darkness where anybody can be hiding yeah you know there's only light it's almost like it's almost like uh like like street lamps in in the old noir where you're standing under a street lamp and you know you're safe here in this pool of light right and you see the next one over there and you just need to get there uh-huh. And anything could happen to you between then and, you know, here and there, but you just need to get there. And that seemed to be kind of his his uh, his way of thinking when it comes to this is this killer. You don't know what he looks like. You don't know when he will strike next. And so you it just needed to create this paranoia that film noir was so good at, and that involved darkness. It just it needs to be dark. Yeah, and then of course. Next up, 1972, The Godfather, which yeah. um, I don't know if this is true in Clue because I haven't seen it, but I mean, there are shots in The Godfather that's it's so dark you can you can barely even see the person who is talking. Yeah. Like the person who is the focus of the shot mm-hmm. is almost completely cloaked in darkness. Yeah. Uh, and that is is great, and it adds a lot to it's a I think it, Gordon Willis is a big part of the reason why The Godfather is so successful. Mm-hmm. Um um, or, or so memorable, but mm-hmm. it also was it was kind of ballsy. Yeah, it wasn't something that people were used to. Well, The Godfather is ballsy in a, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just uh, its general approach to the gangster movie in general. But yes, I mean he. Oddly enough, when I think of The Godfather, I do I do realize that there's parts of it that are very dark, but I always think of it as a shockingly warm film. Like I think of it as the color like brown. Uh-huh. Like a very warm si- kind of kind of but brown. Think about the beginning. Mm. You know, you're seeing the wedding. Uh, yeah. You know, it's sunny. It's the middle of the day. It's yeah. very bright and sunny. And then you cut to this room. Yeah. Where the shades are drawn and it's, yeah. uh and and that's part of the contrast. It's not a scene that takes place at night. It's a scene that takes place in the middle of the day. Yeah. But it's in a room that has been completely darkened. That's true. Can, yeah. You can barely see Marlon Brando at all. Yeah, and it's and there and. It happens throughout the throughout the film, and I think it's it's also like this really, just it, you you in that first scene the the wedding scene with with Brando in the office, um, 
it really it, you get a nice visual cue. I mean, without anybody saying anything. I mean, of course, the characters are speaking and saying terrible things often, <laughs> but um, but it's a nice visual cue that like behind this really happy exterior is some of the sunny, happy. Oh, so exciting! Behind this is the dark, horrible underbelly uh-huh. of, uh, you know, crime, America, whatever you want to say, because the first line is, I believe in America, and this is what it is. Uh-huh. And underneath underneath this happy exterior of like, oh, a wedding, what's happier than a wedding? There's all this horrible, horrible stuff and uh, I'm just dark stuff. I, I haven't seen The Godfather. It's been too long. I need to watch it again. I know, I s- it, I know it very well because I've seen it like, yeah. like anyone else who cares about movies. Movies I've seen it a dozen times, but... I saw it. Uh, I saw it at the ArcLight uh, about right. a year ago, and uh, really, man, oh man! Um, I, I've said it before, and I and I will say it again. I'll say it right now. In fact, um, regardless of what we might have said in regards to like uh, seeing a movie uh, on your, you know, in your home theater or whatever, um, and movies being made now and being made with DVD in mind and all yeah. that, there are movies that were made for the theater. And if you have the opportunity, see them in the theater. Yeah. We saw Lawrence of Arabia. I've seen Jaws, Citizen Kane, Godfather. It only ever helps. Yeah. You will feel like you're seeing it for the first time. I know that's cliche to say, but man, oh, man. When I saw The Godfather on that big screen, it's like, oh, yeah, this is right. Um, and when I, when I did mention that I thought that I feel like the film is very warm, that's different than thinking it's bright. I don't right. mean sunny and warm. I mean, like, just very, I don't know. As you feel a surprising, I, I I always felt a surprising amount of comfort uh, in the in a lot of the dark family scenes uh-huh. because the and I think it's because the characters themselves are comfortable. I think you're supposed yeah. to feel warm in the sense like you're in the house. It might be cold outside and it's nice and warm while still being dark. You know, and um, I don't know being comfortable in the in this very dark world. I think was is one of the keys of that film. Well, before we move on, uh, I also want to mention, just in terms mm-hmm. of just pure skill, craftsmanship at his job, the scene that's also at the wedding, Michael and uh, Kate, Diane Keaton, mm-hmm. Kate? Right? K. K, right. Uh, are sitting at the table talking. He's telling the stories about his family. You know, mm-hmm. it's outside. It's in the middle of the day at the wedding. Watch that again, knowing that all of the times the camera is on Diane Keaton. Mm-hmm. It's it was shot in the middle of the day. When the camera is on uh, uh, Al Pacino, it was shot in the middle of the night, and it is matched perfectly. And you would swear that Michael, that Michael was sitting there in the middle of the day, but they ran out of time. They, they they had to light it and shoot it at night. Wow! Yeah, I didn't know that. It's amazing. <laughs> That's astounding. The magic uh, of cinema, David. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, 1973, The Paper Chase. Yes. Did you, have you seen The Paper Chase? Yeah, I have. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the, it's it's a movie that is very good, but the main, the guy who's the main character mm-hmm. is not the guy who sticks with me, actually. Oh, right. It's, it's of course, John Houseman. Yeah. Who uh, won an Oscar for that role. Yeah. And also Edward Herman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's uh, a great actor and is a, uh, just a, very small role as, as yeah. just one of the other guys in the class. He's not. Yeah. But it's a story about a guy who's in, is it Harvard? 
Well, now I don't recall, but just law, like, a yeah. prestigious law school. Yeah, and then uh, he's a very promising student. He has a very legendarily tough teacher played by John Houseman, and then yeah. he's also uh, dating a girl who it turns out is John Houseman's character's daughter. Yeah, and uh, and oddly enough, the romance is the is the part that I'm just like, yeah, I don't care. Um, <laughs> but uh, but what's interesting is with a film like that, which has comedic elements, it has dramatic elements. Um, and uh, it, I will say, in many ways, it is like the essence of a 70s movie in its spirit. Because there's nothing more establishment than wanting to be a lawyer. Uh-huh. And But this guy, you know, he's got like a mustache and shaggy hair and all yeah. that. And so it's him being somewhat countercultural, but at the same time doing this incredibly institutionalized thing. And just that kind of conflict. And so it's very much, uh, it deals with a lot of the things... Uh, that they were dealing with in the 60s and 70s. and um, But, you know, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a drama. There's nothing, and I'll, I'll say this again uh, with um, All the President's Men, but even more with this, what is it, why, why would this movie have darkness? Uh-huh. It really shouldn't. It's a kid at law school. You know, and it's not a John Grisham film, by the way. <laughs> you know, there's no suspense. Yeah, but I also think... Um, uh, there's a thing of, uh, I'm not uh, making fun of it by the way. No, Go ahead. The look of this movie is uh, it, it's it's very much uh the main thing that comes to my mind when I think of New England Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. And I think the darkness inside is uh it it shows the age of the buildings mm-hmm. because these buildings were built like uh, some of these buildings were built before electricity, yeah. you know, or you know, it's I think that's why it's dark inside because these people are it, 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 I think it intensifies this clash between his shaggy hair and stuff yeah. and the just deeply rooted establishment of the Ivy League and and law school and that, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that is that's exactly the reason. It's 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 a very unorthodox approach to a story that seems fairly orthodox. Uh-huh. Where and again, it's it's telling the story and and kind of manipulating sounds negative, but like influencing how the audience is going to feel purely through the visuals because um, the film ends. I won't say how it ends, but the film ends with the main character standing on a beach. You know, it, I don't recall it being bright and sunny, but it's open and it's Mm -hmm. refreshing one way or another. You see that as opposed to, of course, the stuffy library and stuff like that, Uh which seems very dark and very dim and just, uh, and, and uh, kind of, kind of stifling and suffocating. And so he, that's the thing is, when he does use darkness, and I'm sorry to keep going back to that, but as we know, he was called the Prince of Darkness by Conrad, by Conrad Hall. Hall. Yeah, we might mention that a couple more times. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it is kind of his trademark, but he didn't use it willy-nilly. He didn't, you know, it's not like the whole film was dark. He uses it to enhance the mood, um, which is, you know, and, and tell a, a visual story. And nothing about the paper chase requires that it be told visually but he still manages to to really really tell you more without saying anything uh, about the situation and so um yeah it's it's not a it's not an approach that one would assume but once you see it, you're like well of course why, why would you do it any other way um yeah and i i enjoy the paper chase yeah, um, me too. but uh yeah some of it is not that compelling but some of it is very compelling but, if you're in college i think you would enjoy it a great deal at this point when i think of the paper chase i think first of um of uh jerry seinfeld doing the john hausman impression because uh 
Well, I, there was a character named Alec Berg. Alec Berg, yes. I can't remember if it was someone that Lane was dating or something, but yeah. <laughs> Jerry's like, sounds like something, just the kind of name you'd hear John Houseman say, Mr. Berg. Mr. Berg. Alec Berg. <laughs> Which I think wound up, I believe that was the name of one of the producers yeah, or something, was. right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's move on to The Godfather Part 2. Okay. Um, which really, it does the stuff The Godfather does, and then it really expands on it, too, in, in, mm-hmm. in two ways. Uh, now, it's been even longer since I've seen The Godfather 2, so I can't remember. So The Godfather 1 starts with, uh, you know, the, the the wedding and then the very dark room. Yeah. In my memory, the be- is the beginning of Godfather Part 2 at Lake Tahoe? Yeah, I believe Th- so. That's where it starts. Where yeah, and I think it's a birth. Is it a birthday party or is it a? It's a party like of a, some sort. It might. You you know Catholic stuff more than I do. Is it like a first communion or something like Probably. that? Probably. Okay. Sounds right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it sounds like. But a I thing. mean, yeah, it's so okay. So that is where it starts. Uh, I can remember what happens first in the movie. But yeah, they're at Lake Tahoe. It's the lake. There's sailboats. Yeah. It's it's picturesque. It's as, yeah. and it's bright. It yeah. is very bright and also a a. a large section of the movie takes place in Cuba mm-hmm. uh, and that's also very bright and warm yeah and it's a, it's also a different kind of brightness yeah. than Lake Tahoe the Cuban stuff seems hotter like it seems hot it, it really there. does yeah as we mentioned actually with uh, John Alonzo that conveying temperature uh-huh. is something that can be very difficult but like Alonzo did it really well that you just can feel like the summer heat. Yeah. Uh, and in Cuba, yes, it does feel warm. Like you just want to start fanning yourself immediately. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a to <laughs> Chinatown in, in terms of Alonzo. I always mm-hmm. see that when I, I see that and I'm like, I can't believe people used to wear suits <laughs> all the time, even when it was hot out. Yeah. And that's, and I think that when I watch Chinatown because it seems hot. Yeah. And yeah, the Cuba stuff definitely seems very hot. It also, uh, Features uh, Uncle Junior from The Sopranos is in the, it sure does is in the, the Cuba sequence which I like didn't even recognize him until you pointed him out to me oh yeah yeah um, anyway uh, but so there's that there's the very bright and hot stuff but also there's the flashback to the Vito Corleone stuff which, which he does is, yeah in, in sort of a almost a sepia type of thing and the focus seems slightly softer yeah and I don't know. I don't know that that was uh, – th- that sort of, like, soft focus sepia tone is, like, almost shorthand for flashback now. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know that that was the case um, at this time. As I was reading up on Gordon Willis, it sounds like he really influenced what the not, – not merely a flash ra- flashback, but, you know, when Vito and, and various people, when they think back to the old days in the old country, sepia, soft focus – it's an idealized uh-huh. version of this. Even though people are getting killed, it's, ah, yes, look at the things I had to do for my family. You know, there's just, it's very wistful and nostalgic. And um, and it sounds like Gordon Willis in Godfather Part Two is responsible for a lot of that. Like, he kicked that off, just this idea of, of not seeing the past completely sharp mm-hmm. like we see the present. You know, um, we we will... We will kind of gloss over things and put this nice sheen on it sometimes, and uh, and yeah, that's and I, I yeah, and it, it looks really nice. It looks very warm, but not in the way mm-hmm. Cuba looks warm. Cuba looks hot. Yeah, this place just looks warm and again comfortable, in spite of the fact that terrible things are going on. You know, it's it is this though. Vito does 
regret some of the things that he had to do. I don't think he, I think he regrets that he had to do them, mm-hmm. but the things themselves, it's like, Hey, I did what I had to do. Yeah. No one pushed me around. And so of course, anything that he had that he feel that he feels he had to do, it's going to get glossed over too. Cause Hey, I'm just taking care of my family. Um, okay. There's also in Godfather part two, a lot of dissolves mm-hmm. from the, the fifties stuff to the yeah. flashback. Um, and there's a dissolve where for a few seconds Vito and Michael are both on the screen at the same time. And that, yeah. was, the, that was the only time that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro had shared a frame of film until ni- 1993, 4, with Heat. I thought it was 5. Oh, maybe it's 95. And then, of course, again, in, I think, I forget if it was 2008 or 2009's Righteous Kill, <laughs> um, in which they shared the whole movie together and Hoover. man that's unfortunate um yeah and i yeah, do that was 2008 um, um ah shoot now i don't remember i was gonna say something about godfather 2 and now i don't recall but well that's maybe right. you'll think of it later let's move on to 1976's could I'm you be more dismissive it's fine go on yes, yes. Going. that's fine uh 1976's all the president's men boy oh boy which is a movie that uh has cinematography that is so great that you would only realize it's great if you went to film school and took cinematography classes. Yeah, which which can sound kind of condescending, but it's one of those things it's you mentioned okay, for you, all the pre- uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the line of fire and heat. No, not heat, Donnie Brasco, uh-huh. I'm sorry. Uh, but you did just rewatch Heat, correct? Yes, I watched okay. it recently. Um All the President's Men is one of those movies for me. I don't know why. Um I know how it ends and it's but I will pop it in frequently, uh, and so I, I've become very, very well acquainted with the cinematography, and it's mu- much like The Paper Chase, it's it's a film that, it, it does have some suspense to it, of course, but it's a journalism film, uh-huh. probably no one's going to die, so one would say, like, well, why are they, you know, why would it have so much darkness and, and all this sort of thing, and then, of course, you realize that there's... It's it's investigative journalism in the truest sense. I mean, they're really uncovering something. And the contrast between the scenes that are dark and the scenes that are light, I think that mm-hmm. that's the key to that film. The scenes that are darker, of course, anytime somebody is talking, anytime one of the reporters is talking to a source. Now, in the case of Deep Throat, it's in a dark parking garage, and you, the Deep Throat is first uh, introduced by flicking a lighter and uh-huh. you, all you see is darkness and maybe you see two legs standing there uh-huh. and then you just see a slight flame as he's lighting his cigarette. And so that scene is of course really dark and deep throat himself is on, played by Hal Holbrook is almost always in darkness except for his eyes. Um, so there's stuff like that. And then of course, when uh, uh, shoot Jane, I don't remember her name, but uh, one of the, one of the sources is a, uh, a woman and uh, that went on. That was actually nominated for an Oscar for it. And uh, man, I wish I remembered yeah, her name, but that's fine. Oh, hang on. Oh, no, I closed that window. Okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, and in that scene, the she's very reluctant to give information, mm-hmm. and that's one of the darker scenes as well. And and Dustin Hoffman's character has to just sit down and just methodically get it out, get little scraps of information where he can. And so a scene like that, it's also not very bright, and it kind of indicates what the tone of that scene is going to be, where you know it's important. You know that this is going to be, this, is, this woman is a wealth 
of information, mm-hmm. but she's not going to give it to you, you know? And so the excitement of getting it out of her and the suspense of, hey, she can throw him out anytime she wants. Mm-hmm. And she probably will at some point if he's not careful, if he doesn't walk this fine line of tact, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, curiosity. And so, uh, so it is a scene that is surprisingly suspenseful. And, of course, the deep throat scenes, there, there's so much intrigue in those that those need to be very dark and suspenseful. You look at those and you compare them with the newsroom. Newsroom, totally bright. But here's what I want to talk about. Okay. What, what, I, what I meant by the fact that unless you took classes or know mm-hmm. how, how cameras and lighting, like film cameras and lighting works, yeah. you wouldn't know how insane those newsroom things are because mm-hmm. it's a huge room yeah the camera's low you can see the ceiling yeah that's a big part of it you can see the ceiling all like all yeah. the time so where are the lights you know that's the, that's the difficulty you had to hide the lights in those mm-hmm. panels because you you can't really light uh you can't light any, you can't just set a camera in a room with fluorescent lights like that and have it look that good, good, yeah. Yeah, like, he's doing a lot of tricks and hiding lights in places. Yeah. Everyone will look very jaundiced if you do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it, it's, it's really breathtaking if you, if you know what goes into lighting for, for film. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, digital light is a different thing um, and has a lot of its own advantages and disadvantages. But uh, the, Those, the, the newsroom thing is really impressive from just a sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, esoteric standpoint. The, those newsroom scenes, they are a miracle of cinematography, lighting, and art direction. Uh-huh. I mean, because the whole thing about it is that it needs to not seem remarkable. It needs yeah. to seem like a place that these people go every day, and there's just papers strewn everywhere, a certain degree of organization, but not a lot. Uh-huh. And and it needs to be brightly lit like somebody's office. Yeah. And, you ha- and of course, which... And it, but it also needs to be brightly lit in a way that is com- that seems completely unremarkable. Yeah. And so, um, did you ever see Dick? No, I didn't. Oh, well, I wanted to though. I well, always... Will Ferrell and Bruce McCullough play Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah, and their scenes in the office are clear, like just in in every way like a perfect recreation of the newsroom in all the presidents. Movie. Oh, cool! It's very funny. Um, but. Uh, and that's the thing is I'm sure someone would say like, well, you know, why does the newsroom have to look like that? One is that, you know, it's brightly lit and the indication is that no, there are no secrets here. The truth is where, you know, this is where you find the truth. Mm-hmm. No, you can't hide in darkness. This is where the truth comes out in this newsroom and, uh, and they'll methodically get it. And so I feel like it needs to be brightly lit, but it also doesn't it can't it doesn't need to be sensationalized. So many other parts of the film kind of are sensationalized, but that part can't be. It needs to be true. That's the that's mm-hmm. the essence of that. And it's lit that way and it's shot that way. Completely unremarkable and completely true and objective like a newsroom should be. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, there's there's so many the, th- the one of the wonderful things to me about all the president's men is that it needs, as I said, it needs to be unremarkable, remarkable, and it it needs to convey a mood without completely without calling your attention to the fact that it's creating that mood. Mm-hmm. You're like in the true sense of a journalist, the journalist doesn't call attention to himself; he calls attention to the story that he's telling. Mm-hmm. Look at always be looking at this, and the way he writes it is supposed to get you interested in the story, without ever looking at the journalist and saying, "Wow, he's really great." 
and that so it's it really is the es- that film the way it's shot and all that really the way the story is told in general is the essence of journalism and that's one of the reasons I love it so much and his his cinematography is really uh, almost the the key element uh, of that film. Well put. Thank you. Yeah, a lot more to say about that than I did. <laughs> it took my surprise, but I was very pleased with it. It is it's it is one of those it is one of those movies that just really I, the more every time I watch it, it's just like this. That I never I'm never going to get tired of this. Uh-huh. I, and I I would love to. See, it's it's also not one of those movies that is shown on the big screen very often because it's not viewed as a big screen experience. But if it ever is, like I saw I'm, it really uh, in Chicago at Doc Films at oh. the, uh, the where, where do they do Doc Films University of Chicago. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I saw it. You were uh, I, uh, it was when we lived. With, it was me, you, and Cole, the guy who did our theme music. Yeah, uh, both of you had gone home for Thanksgiving. Oh yeah, I did not go home for Thanksgiving that year, and all my friends were home. I had nothing to do. Yeah, but on I think it was like on Thanksgiving. Doc Films was showing all the President's Men. You know what? In retrospect, I wish I had uh, stayed in <laughs> Chicago. You know, if I knew I was missing that, I mean, whatever. I see my family all the time. Um, all right. So uh, last year, a little over a year ago, I for the first time mm. I went to visit New York City. I'd never been before. I haven't been back since, but I want to. Uh, but I was very eager to see, because I have an idea in my mind of what New York City looks I had mm. an idea of what it looked like, and I was very eager to see how much does New York City actually look like Annie Hall? Yeah. Because that's my idealized version of New York City. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's Woody Allen's idealized version of New York City as well. Mm. Um, and No um, black people, you mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so the answer is, it, uh, it doesn't look, New York City doesn't look as completely unlike Annie Hall as I had set myself up to, because I'm a pessimist. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. Mm. There are still parts of it that are very Annie Hall-ish, you know, yeah. and then there are parts that are, like, do the right thing-ish, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, the it's funny that we had, in the 1970s, we had uh, things like Death Wish, mm-hmm. or, you know, like, just movies that made New York City seem like, or even, like, Escape from New York, like, yeah. just played with this idea of New York City as, as just a... Just a, a teeming island of crime and <laughs> and uh and just degradation and then you also had woody allen's films yeah. which made it seem like just a liberal's paradise <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah um and uh, uh yeah annie hall is not a movie that is dark mm-hmm. in these other ways and and we'll, we'll talk about a, a few of the woody allen movies that he did mm-hmm. uh because Gordon Willis, like he did, you know, he worked with Coppola and Pacula. Indeed. Um, and, but he also worked, he might have actually done more films than any other director with Woody Allen. And yeah. It might just be a function of the fact that Woody Allen makes so many movies. Yeah, that's true. Um, so uh, I don't really know what else to say about Annie Hollow except that it's it really, uh, it displays, I mean, we've talked a lot about his versatility, but we keep going back to this light versus dark thing. Yeah. And that's not... What Annie Hall is about at all? Annie yeah. Hall is more like the flashbacks in Godfather Part Two, where there's a yeah. uh, there's a warmth and there's a certain color, there's a consistent color that that uh, makes New York just seem like such a wonderful place. Yeah, it's uh, and it, what fascinates me is how on earth, and th- it's probably you know this this has probably been documented somewhere. How on earth Woody Allen saw his saw Willis's work uh-huh. in the Godfather films and Clute and all these things yeah. and said clearly this is the man. Yeah. 
you know. But um, I think I think there's something in the paper chase that you can kind of see. I suppose, yeah, yeah. Um, not the not the paper chase necessarily necessarily looks like Annie Hall, mm-hmm. but there's a there's a texture. Yeah, uh, to the, to the locations in the paper chase that that I think he definitely brings to Annie Hall. Yeah, that's that's actually that's a really good word. Actually, is uh, we've been focusing so much on the light and dark thing that uh, he he is a, a, a cinematographer who really makes you feel like you're there. I uh-huh. mean, you certainly feel like you're in the newsroom. You certainly feel like you're in the libraries and stuff. Yeah, uh, or the paper in Cuba. chase. Yeah, and so um, yeah, and I guess I guess there's a certain a certain kind of kinetic reality that is created there that, that Woody Allen wanted for something like Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, honestly, it's been so long since I've seen Annie Hall. I'm not really sure what I have to say about it. Well, I, let's, we've been going for a while. We can okay. just sort of move on. Um, the next one on my How list. How did we ever think this episode was going to be shorter? Yeah. Uh, we talked about Prana 3D forever. <laughs> um, the next one on my list is interiors. I'm not sure what's next. Manhattan is my next, oh, okay. my next one. Um, so, uh, Interiors is another Woody Allen film, but it's not. It's not a Woody not Allen. Not really film a Woody Allen, Allen film. It. Yeah. It's, it's Woody Allen paying tribute to Ingmar Bergman. It's, yeah. Um, uh, and it's not. I would say it's mostly successful. I don't know. You haven't, you haven't seen it. I haven't I seen take it. it. Um, it's an interesting uh, thing for Woody Allen to do, mm-hmm. and it was. I'd say largely successful, but sometimes is striving a little bit. But it gives uh, um, it gives Gordon Willis the chance to be uh, painterly in a way that, mm. uh, and I, I think he always was. But um, so much of his other of the stuff we've talked about so far, uh, as as nuanced as the cinematography is, it's serving the the larger story or mm-hmm. character moment or emotion or whatever. Whereas interiors is such a mannered film that he gets to, uh, he, he gets to just sort of be, yeah, be painterly and make mm-hmm. some really striking compositions. I compare, I can compare it. I compare it to, um, <laughs> and now I've forgotten the name of the cinematographer who did the girl with the pearl earring. Um, but you, did you see the girl with the pearl earring? Nah, yes. Yeah, it's it's a very good movie, and it's about a painter, and so yeah. he the cinematography made the cinematographer whose name is escaping me, but it doesn't matter. It's not who we're doing a show about. Uh, um, made it look like a painting, and that's kind of what Interiors is doing. So very, I mean, like the emphasis is really on compositions. Yeah, uh, I think so. yeah. which, I mean, if you're going to do any kind of homage to Bergman, that's what it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, he's a very iconic director in the sense that i mean i haven't seen very many of his films but for but the one i'm most familiar with is seventh seal and that Mm -hmm. thing when i think of that i think of a series of of very defined images you know and interior takes place a rich family who has a very modern uh you know late 70s uh home with lots of just sort of straight lines and sharp angles and stuff and and the the cinematography and the way that the the way that the shadows differentiate from the light very mm-hmm. much recalls the same angles and the architecture of the house mm-hmm. that they live in. So, Manhattan, 1979. Manhattan. Which I have uh, not seen. Yeah, I only recently saw it, and uh, <laughs> my, my own... Uh, I, I've I've started to... This is going to... I'm probably going to get some emails about this. Uh, I've started to turn on Woody Allen a bit, mm-hmm. and it came from... Uh, as you know, my friends and I will 
have a, we have a weekly movie night tonight. We're watching uh, Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York, which I haven't seen. Okay, and um, good I'm luck eager, with all I'm, that. Yeah, I'm eager to see what I think. I know you hate it, and I know Jason loves it. Do you guys it. not do double features anymore? It used to be no, not anymore. Uh, fewer people were showing up, and we much prefer to see one movie and then talk about it afterwards. And then we all go to Denny's and make stupid jokes. But <laughs> um, you're welcome to come sometime. Yeah, probably sure. not tonight though. No, I'm not interested in tonight. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the night we watched Werkmeister Harmonies was interesting. Um, but the, uh, but we did have, we had a triple feature of Woody Allen once. Uh-huh. And, uh, now one of them, I, we watched Annie Hall, but I was going to be late. So uh-huh. I said, Hey, watch that one first. Cause I've seen it. Of course I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it for probably 10 years. Uh-huh. Oh, probably longer than that. Like probably 12 years. And uh, I can't talk about it with any authority, but by all means, it's like I've seen it, so it's it's fine. Right. <laughs> um, so, but then we watched uh, Manhattan and Stardust Memories. Uh, so one, let's talk about those back to back then. Here, uh, maybe not actually, because they're very different. Yeah, but I'm saying. Oh yes, yes. We're just going to go back, right indeed. from one to the next. Um, and watching those two movies in a row actually made me kind of turn on some of Woody Allen's attitudes uh-huh. in his films. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, that won't have anything to do with what I have to say here, but uh, it's it might come through um, in <laughs> in the way I say things. Um, Manhattan is of course beautiful. It's shot in black and white, and uh, and while while you were talking about interiors, I wasn't really listening. Sure. I was preparing what I was going to say about Manhattan, yeah. and uh, and what was interesting is I'm already thinking about Stardust Memories. Now we're okay. All right. <laughs> This is gonna great. It'd be great. This is how the this is how the show has gone so long is we just never listen to each other um, and just wait for our turn to talk. Um, Manhattan is is it's shot in black and white. It's beautiful. It is in me- it, at least visually very much an idealized version of New York. I mean, it's just you see like this beautiful black and white skyline uh, with the you know the lights from the skyscraper windows just you know glistening out like stars. Um, and as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, it's very, you know, it's very Gershwinian. And I was like, wait, the soundtrack is full of Gershwin. (laughs) How did I not realize that? And then I thought maybe it's a subconscious thing, but, and there's a reason that Woody Allen chose that music to go with those images because Mm -hmm. it's just this grand, wonderful, exciting, vibrant version of New York that you would think here's, here's what fascinates me about the use of black and white. And maybe someday we can do an episode about black and white. I think we probably could. And, we and should, should be writing down these ideas. Maybe we should. <laughs> Whatever. We're going to have like eight guest episodes and we'll forget these ideas. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so like it's – you would think that black and white dulls uh, mm-hmm. an image and that if you want vibrant – it means color, you know, like Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, just a very, you know, any any number of Michael Powell films, just very vibrant technicolor. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to really under to really get, you know, life out of an image. Uh, you watch Manhattan, and of course, some of it has to do with the music that's playing over it. That's just fun and exciting and full of life. Um, but you watch Manhattan, and you think, ah, oh, somehow. This is how New York should be seen. Mm-hmm. Black and white and just gorgeous. And it just it's such a it's just such a visual love letter to the city. And I've never been there. But I watch that and of course, I mean you watch that and it's like, well, of course it isn't this because mm-hmm. life's well, it's in, in color. It's in color, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um 
but it's just visual. You oh, know, so the, when when does Manhattan take place? It's modern day. Okay, yeah. Have you um, seen Radio Days? No, I haven't. That's a good one. I did see the Radio Land Murders. Is it similar to that? Uh, it has. They both have the word radio in the title. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, close enough. I mean, I, I feel like I don't need to see Radio Days now. Yeah. Um, but you, you've uh, seen Radio with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Ed Harris. I didn't see that one. And Talk Radio with. Uh, I've yeah. Uh, no, I did see. I saw Talk to Her. Sure. Yeah. So I felt like I didn't need to see Talk Radio. Well, I didn't see. I didn't see Talk to Her, but I saw Look Who's Talking Now. Oh, okay. And then I saw I, I saw Now and Then. Yeah. I saw In the Army Now. <laughs> so that's that Coppola film, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're done. And I have uh, seen Talk to Her. And I have not seen. I have not uh, seen Talk to Her. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen Now and Then or a million other things I said. Oh, uh, uh, what a delightful game. It's my favorite. Yeah. Okay. Um, where were we? I don't know. Okay. Like I said, I oh. wasn't paying attention. Oh, fair enough. Um <laughs> So yeah, it just so it takes place modern day, and the story itself is a very conventional um, Woody Allen story. When I I don't mean to sound insulting when I say that, it's just it's very much cut from the same cloth as Annie Hall or, yeah. or any of any of his other uh, movies like Hannah and Her Sisters and such. Um, so the story, it's it's very strange because the story doesn't seem to match the images, except that it does. You feel like wow. In this wondrous place called New York that looks so beautiful, there's a million stories just like this one. You know, that's what makes it so neat. Mm-hmm. That in such a wonderful place, such, you know, um, pedestrian... The story is not pedestrian, but it's not a grand story. It doesn't match the image. But the reason that the place is so amazing is because there's a million of thing, uh, a million people, you know, several million people, just like this guy. A million stories happening just like this. And this is just one snapshot. It just, it feels like, I don't know, it's, it is just, it is such a love letter to, to New York in general. And the, and the cinematography is beautiful. And of course it should have been shot in black and white. There's no question about it. Uh I mean, I remember going in once it, once uh, the story had started, I thought like, why does this need to be in black and white? And, uh, that, that thought went away pretty quick. Like once you saw how gorgeous it was and what you saw, once you saw what Woody Allen was trying to accomplish in regards to his attitude about New York, then I can't imagine it being shot any other way. It's really a beautiful film. Well, also shot in black and white is 1980s Stardust Memories. Yes. Which, uh, let's just talk about the movie for a second because I completely understand why that this movie would turn you off of Woody Allen a little bit. Manhattan did too now. Uh, but I haven't seen it. But, yeah. but I also think the point of Stardust Memories is I think he's kind of making fun of himself as well. He's making fun of his of his fans. Mm-hmm. He's mean to his fans. In the he movie. sure is. Uh, but he's also poking fun at himself like the guy who everybody just wants to see him do comedy mm-hmm. but he takes himself way too seriously. Like think about the fact that his character has a huge photograph on his on his wall of that Vietnamese guy getting shot in the head. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's so pretentious and uh, and and just terrible and despicable. Yeah. Um, and I don't. And I think Woody Allen recognizes that he's. It, it, he, he, there's a certain ambivalence to the film as to mm-hmm. who's who's worse, Woody Allen or his fans. And uh, I think he depicts the fans as worse. Okay. And that uh, maybe he wouldn't run towards the pretentiousness. Pretension is the word. Uh-huh. It's the name of our show. <laughs> Ugh. 
I'm so sleepy. <laughs> um, he wouldn't be running. He wouldn't make such a mad dash towards pretension if his fans were to let, just let him do what he wanted uh-huh. and be out and be willing to go with him. But it, by insisting that he do comedy, and and even then a certain kind of comedy, by insisting uh-huh. on that, it drives him even further towards this thing. And if it weren't for them, he'd probably be much more even keeled. That's the impression that I got from the film. But also, I mean. You mentioned interiors being like Bergman. I mean, uh-huh. Stardust Memories is Fellini. Fellini, yeah. I mean, it's it's eight and a ha- eight and a half. Yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, remade. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gordon Willis definitely takes his cues from Fellini and from Eight oh, and yeah. a Half. Um, it's it's black and white. I don't know. Would you say it's the same kind of black and white as uh, Manhattan? As Manhattan. Oh my no. Yeah. It's, no no. It, it it very much seems like it could have been shot by. Fellini's cinematographer. It yeah. It it has it actually this is going to sound weird and maybe even a little insulting. It has a there's a certain grittiness to it. Not uh-huh. grittiness like, "Hey man, I grew up on the streets." But like grittiness like it's a, a couple decades old. Yeah. Almost, I, I, the word I was going like to use to describe it is murky at times. Murky, yeah. That's pr- yeah. that's a good word. Yeah. Um and because of the weird aspect of it and weird might be a little reductive, but uh, ethereal. That sounds much better. Okay. The ethereal aspect of it. It's murky and dreamlike, you know. Um, and and while the black and white photography in Manhattan is not completely reality, it certainly is not dreamlike. It's mm-hmm. it's an idealized version of reality. Whereas in uh, in Stardust Memories, it's just you're just you really do feel like you're just floating along, just watching what happens, and mm-hmm. we'll see where we land. You yeah. Know? Stardust Memories is a movie that I don't think uh, I don't think generally gets placed among Woody Allen's best. Mm-hmm. And when I first saw it, I agreed with that. I didn't think it was that great, but mm-hmm. it's really become one of my favorites of his. It's not one, it's it's not one of my favorites, but it is. It certainly is one of his most personal. Yeah, and, um, and probably one of his most remarkable. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Oh I yeah, yeah. It's one of his most remarkable movies. Remarkable. It means it's worth remarking on, and I would agree yeah. with that. Um, but I think it is rising in estimation. It's, mm. it's, yeah. I think it's one of those films that, uh, that what, what, yeah. What, like I'm just repeating myself. It wasn't considered mm. part of his, part of the Woody Allen canon. But I yeah. think it's it's coming up there. I think so because uh, one of the things that that I've come to realize bothers me about him is that I feel like he kind of distances himself from from like the emotional core of his movies. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, so I'm o- I'm okay with that in some people. Uh, Robert Altman often does it, uh-huh. but at the same time, Robert Altman isn't in the film. You know, like the fact that Woody Allen is in right. there commenting on the emotions of all these other people. And here we are. I've I don't know how I got there, but what I so I won't go into that. But a, a filmmaker who is a little a little distant, mm-hmm. uh, making a film as deeply personal as Stardust Memories, I think maybe as people have gotten a chance to look back on his career, they realize, wow, this is a rarity right here. Like, this is not merely a love letter to Fellini, which it is, Uh but it's also also using Fellini to reveal more about himself. Yeah. And uh, I think that's why people like it. Just wrap up talking about Gordon Willis' contributions to Stardust Memories. It is, yeah, often... uh, murky and maybe a little more uh verite yeah um than 
his previous work, but occasionally there's a, there'll be something like just a you've seen it more recently, but it's something mm-hmm. like a white hot spot or something that will yeah. like really throw it into contrast and make it and 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 draw you back into the dreaminess of it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a film that I think lacks most darkness. Like it, 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 I don't think of it as a dark movie. I think yeah. it was a very, very bright movie. Mm-hmm. Like just almost like perpetual daylight. Which, frankly, I'm probably going to sound a little pretentious here. Uh, in the spirit of like all the president's men, uh-huh. where the newsroom has to take place in perpetual fluorescent light, uh-huh. where no secrets can exist. Woody Allen's character is always being watched by somebody, and so yeah. he probably feels like there's nowhere he can hide. Well, let's wrap up this this conversation by jumping ahead ten years. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, to to nineteen nineties, The Godfather Part Three. Yeah, I'm which not I haven't really seen sure in years. What to say? I've only seen it once. Yeah, and it was yeah years ago. Um, I mean, it's. I would say, here's the thing. My own personal misgivings about the film in general. Um, there's of course nothing wrong with the with the cinematography, and what I, what I what I f- do remember is that I'm gonna okay. disagree actually. That there's really wrong okay. With it. Not that there's it's very accomplished. Okay, but uh, the movie. J- I, have jumped, a, it, I have a word in my head, and I want to see if you hit it. Uh, no, I don't know. Is the word incongruous? Oh, no. Um, it the it Godfather Three jumps ahead like twenty years. Yeah. Um, and I feel like Gordon Willis's style, he's shooting very much in the same style he was for the other New York sequences in, in one and two. And yet you've got these, like, like Andy Garcia's very 1970s style, you know, with mm. his like leather jacket and stuff like that. Yeah. Or his le- leather sport coat. I actually, I, uh, I don't remember the, when it comes to like lighting and stuff, oddly enough, I don't remember much. What I remember more is camera angles uh-huh. and he does he takes his cues from the story and from what Coppola clearly wanted to accomplish and all of a sudden everything it is everything takes on an operatic feel you know you're right and this is something um I th- I, you, know, you have the Godfather DVD and I don't but I think yeah. I've watched more of the special features than you have I'd say that's about right um they, uh, Gordon Willis, uh, the, the, I had forgotten about this until he mentioned it. On the first Godfather, Willis and Coppola got into arguments about stuff because mm. Willis wanted it to be, wanted the the sort of, especially in terms of angles, to be mm-hmm. as realistic as possible, mm. as if it's something that you could see. And yeah. so, like, the scene before the, the Michael kills the police chief, yeah. or police captain or whatever he is, when they're in the, the establishing shot of that restaurant, the camera's way up. And you're yeah. looking down on the whole restaurant at once in a wide angle. Mm-hmm. And Coppola had to just fight Gordon Willis tooth and foot to, to even shoot that. Mm-hmm. It's, not the, it's not his style. And I think it's I, – I, I, don't, I don't think either one of them is right or wrong. I think yeah. that's part of the great thing about when the collaborative process of filmmaking – clicks when it works yeah when you get coppola and willis in their prime that's why that's why you have a film because of their both agreements and disagreements that's why you have a film as brilliant as the godfather yeah so i guess that translates to godfather 3 and that coppola won a movie even more and maybe to the film's detriment and also i mean maybe willis you know maybe he was getting older not to imply he was an old man uh, by any stretch of the imagination but maybe he was just 
more willing to be accommodating. And frankly, that story is operatic. Uh-huh. It's very tragic and kind of baroque and all these all <laughs> these various things. Yeah. And uh, and so maybe he recognized that, like, you know what? I'm not going to fight him on this because look at this thing. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, look at what look at what he's telling now. I'm willing to do. And I mean, there's a scene of opera in it. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so I think he recognized very important cannolis. <laughs> Is that the same scene? Uh, yes, I believe so, so yes. Um, and so I think he recognized even more so, because I think he's he's a guy who always tried to do what the story dictated and wanted to emphasize what was going on. And honestly, the story had taken a much less realistic turn and became very, or at least as far as the tone that Coppola wanted to strike, became very operatic. And I think he's like, all right. I guess this is what we're doing. And he just, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it does seem, it doesn't really seem to fit with his other filmography, uh, you know, with Mm -hmm. his other films. But, uh, but at the same time, if you look at it on its own terms, it's what, it's clearly what the movie needed or, or what Coppola felt he needed. Um, and so he was, uh, Willis was willing to do it. And, uh, and I, I respect that as somebody, I mean, we both made films in, school and there was always the dp that was more interested in building his reel than doing what you wanted That's to every do every dp at columbia college chicago except my our friend of the show mike vanderweiss yeah, you're right no there are exceptions but but yeah columbia college chicago is a school to go to if you want to be a dp yeah if you want to be a director just know you're going to have to fight with some diva dps because they are yeah the, they are the kings of the department very much so and it's a bunch, uh, bunch of assholes <laughs> no I'm, i was friends with plenty of them i just wanted to say that uh, <laughs> but the um but yeah and so uh a dp who is willing to accommodate the director because he realizes that yeah the director is the guy in charge um is is invaluable and and of course if they do butt heads a little bit, sometimes great things can come out of it. But at the same time, being willing to accommodate what a director wants to do, that is also uh, admirable. I mean, just as long as you're not walking around on the set going, yeah, da 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 da, then you're, <laughs> you know, I think that's, I think you're a good DP at that point. As long point. as you're fucking professional. <laughs> um, yeah, but Godfather 3, the, the, the look of it, and I, yeah, I can clearly blame Coppola because. Mm. I dislike the look of it for the same reasons I dislike the look of his uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm. uh, which wasn't directed by Alan J. Pacula. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> Somebody missed the opportunity yeah, there. Pacula's Dracula. Um, it's Starring Scott, Bal- Scar- Scott, <laughs> Scott Bacula. Dracula. Of course. How could I, how could I yeah. miss that? Pacula's Dracula starring um, Bacula. Oh, it's man. It's a little too – they're both, li- like, too lush looking, mm. you know? The yeah. reds are too red. Yeah. Uh, it, it It looks like – I guess operatic is right because it looks like the way you light uh, and and just do costume design and set design for a theatrical mm-hmm. experience where the theater is larger than life. Yeah. Whereas the you are there-ness of film makes film generally closer to it. That we, I think we've talked about this like how it got this weirdness before mm-hmm. that even though when you, like when you're watching theater live theater even though you're actually seeing people yeah it's more distanced from real life it's more yeah. larger than life you know films uh because it's as if you're stepping inside of one by looking through the camera yeah uh it's it, our brains treated as closer to reality also i think it has to do with just the fact that i mean you mentioned the idea of you are there well when you're on a film set they want they do everything they can to make you believe that you're there uh-huh. there's only so much they can do of that in theater 
And so yeah. that kind of takes you out of it a little bit. But, I mean, you know, sometimes it can work. This is getting off topic, so I just want to say for a second, like, Moulin Rouge is a film that I think works mm. in that by being very lush. And I think it's because uh, it's not just the look, but also the feel. Like, the, the editing and the cinematography are also over the top. Mm-hmm. Whereas the stuff with Godfather 3 and Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, angles aside, the camera is still still a lot of the time mm-hmm. you know and doesn't get caught up in the over exaggeratedness of the yeah. rest of the movie and that's yeah. why that's why those films don't work for me hmm. yeah i'd say that's because coppola i mean if you watch i mean apocalypse now and then even one from the heart uh-huh. and uh and yeah godfather three and bram stoker's dracula i mean coppola is a guy who really it would appear that his desire was always to be a director of opera, a director of uh-huh. of huge things, you yeah. know, of you know Shakespearean tragedy. It, you know what? That's not even big enough. Greek tragedy, uh-huh. you know, like that. That seems to be where he is naturally inclined to to go. And you know what? I will say that oddly, his most successful film of that type is The Outsiders. Hmm. As small scaled as it is, yeah. It's very much Greek tragedy. You yeah, know? very much so. And, and uh, th- yeah, I think that's that, that's a movie more people need to revisit. I, I really think that movie is successful. I haven't seen it since uh, seventh grade. Wow, it's when good. we watched it because we read the book, or rather, so, I didn't read it. But September eleventh, indeed, two thousand ten. Yeah, Meltdown Comics, five bucks, eight p.m. Free beer, tippy bartender. Yeah, Sean Connery, Matt Champagne, Paul Gilmartin. Stephen Tobolowsky. Very exciting. The two of us, of course, will be there. Very, yes. Um, a- Adam Adam Ribotaro did another great poster for us. Indeed. The flyer, you can see it on our Facebook page mm-hmm. or probably on the BattleshipRetention.com. Yep. The BattleshipRetention.com. I'm yep. my grandpa. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, come out, join us. It'll be a great time, as always. Mm. We don't even need to tell you guys anymore. Yeah. We've, we've proved twice in a row we know what we're doing. If this third one goes well, then I will start having confidence. Okay. Uh, well, it's going to go great. Yeah. Um, so that's that, That's where you guys should be on September 11th at 8 p.m. Yeah. Meltdown Comics, 7522 Sunset Boulevard. Indeed. Bring five bucks and uh, a willingness to drink beer. Indeed. And some singles to tip the bartender. Indeed. Otherwise, you can find us... Actually, hang on. Uh, real quick, in regards to... On a roll. I know. In regards to BattleshipPretension.com, if you look on the front page, uh-huh. you'll notice it looks a little different. Yeah. Um, we are doing something uh, a little bit different, and I think this is probably how we're going to do it from now on. Um, on the front page, there is now like our a, a news feed. Anytime something new goes up, whether it be like a new Ask BP... Uh, a new episode, a new blog. Which there will start being new blogs. Yes, David new... was waiting for me to get this thing ironed yeah, out. And new we movies of the week. Yeah. We're going to go back. I think we should go back to calling it movie of the week. Uh, really? Yeah, I could I could do it if you want. If you think you can do it, by all means, I, go I, ahead. I could do it. Okay, fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, but you can, you can find all that on the front page. And uh, there is a, an icon that you can click. So that you can actually subscribe to it, so that anytime there's a new update, uh, you, it'll be you know sent to your Google Reader, or whatever, what, so whatever RSS, it is that you uh, prefer, aggregator thing you have. Yeah. So yeah, uh, do that because we're gonna start blogging more. I swear to God. Yeah. Um. Anyway, you can find us as 
Tyler mentioned at BattleshipRetention.com or in iTunes. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Twitter.com slash ThePretension. You can follow him, Tyler, on Twitter at Twitter.com slash MoreLessons, which is the official Twitter of Tyler's other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com or in iTunes. And as always, you can find my other podcast, the weekly TV review podcast, Previously On at PreviouslyOnShow.com or in iTunes. All right. So, uh, David, it was nice talking to you again. Yeah, this is good. We should do it more often. Yeah. No, not, not, not next week, though. No. I feel like this was enough for at least a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, yeah, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. that purple stuff it's not purple stuff it's grape stuff oh. it's clear like it's like that weiler's watermelon that i used to always get <laughs> from jewel exactly <laughs> i remember those those sunny delight commercials where the person's going through the <laughs> the refrigerator and they're like okay what do we got we got soda soda oj purple stuff and two kinds of sunny d or you know whatever yeah. <laughs> and i remember as a kid i was just like why'd you brush the purple stuff aside <laughs> i bet it's delicious it's probably grape What's wrong with you? Also, is Sunny D that different from OJ? Technically, it is. All right. I, I, I don't really care for it. I don't know. I don't know if... I, oh, okay. I'm I think, sorry. I think we're comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Okay, so that's, that's what we've got for the top of the show. <laughs> right. Now let's move into the topic. Okay. Okay. <clears throat>